Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday morning. It's sort of a message that's probably being preached in a number of different churches. And yet every time it's preached and every year that we preach it, it does not detract one bit of the miracle that took place represented by this morning. Christmas is the biggest time because Christmas was the time where God became flesh, where God became man. And that was an exciting time. That was a great time. But what happened was that when Jesus had finished his ministry, he was crucified, put to death, buried in the grave, but then he rose from the dead, showing once and for all that death had lost its hold on those that believe in Christ Jesus. So this has got to be the most exciting time. This is the time where we saw the release of the Holy Spirit coming because of Easter. You know, the Holy Spirit was able to come and dwell among his people. Sin had been removed. The church was ready. The church was ready to accept. The platform was laid for the start of the church, and we can rejoice. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the most central figure in all of history. Now, when we stop to think about it a minute, we can see the impact that Jesus had when even our very history is divided by his life and his death. In fact, all history of the earth is being calculated according to Jesus. Not by any other prophet, not by any other leader, not by any other teacher, but Jesus. Even nations that deny Christ, deny that he is the Christ, will still use him as the center point of their history throughout the world. Now, a lot of people think, well, B.C. stands for before Christ and A.D. stands for after death, and that's half correct. You know, how could the year 1 B.C. have been before Christ and A.D. 1 been after death? While B.C. stands for before Christ, A.D. actually stands for the Latin phrase Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So the B.C.A.D. dating system is not taught in the Bible, but it was not fully implemented and accepted until several centuries after Jesus' death. And the purpose of the B.C.A.D. dating system was to make the birth of Jesus Christ the dividing point of world history. Every nation you go, every event you take, every history book you go through, you're always going to find that these things happened either so and so many years B.C. or so and so many years A.D. Every event in history is calculated, whether secular, Christian, it doesn't matter what faith, is calculated according to the birth of Jesus. Now we know that the system, when it was being calculated, they made a mistake in pinpointing the year of Jesus' death. So scholars have later discovered that Jesus was actually born around either 6 to 4 B.C., not A.D. 1. But it's really not a crucial issue. It doesn't matter. It was still his birth that was the center point or the set point. The birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus were the turning points of world history. Jesus Christ is the separation of the old and the new, B.C. was before Christ, and we have been living in the year of our Lord ever since. The turning point of history. And now knowing that Jesus rose from the dead should lead us to celebrate our Easter every day. Every single day should be a day of resurrection. 
This central truth of the scriptures that Jesus rose from the dead sort of encompasses everything about the Christian faith and even so much of the world. You can have scholars that are trying to explain this all away and they'll still come back to that time because they recognize that this was a time in history where something major took place. So everything that we as Christians believe revolves around his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So we should never allow the miracle of this event to lose its awe-inspiring truth. Now, I do believe that since their death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there have been different plots, if you would, to try and take away the meaningfulness of this time. You know, there's a lot of people today when the first thing that they talk about Easter, the first thing they start talking about is the rabbits and the Easter eggs and the Easter bonnets or whatever it is. And all of the tradition has started becoming central. In fact, a lot of young people are being raised nowadays, and they can tell you all about the Easter eggs and all about the Easter bunny, but they don't know anything about the Lord of Easter. They have been raised in the secular system instead of in the Christian system. But the truth is, Jesus is the center of it, no matter how long or how often that we try to avoid it. Now, that being said, I do not believe that Christians necessarily have to eschew all of the other trappings or symbols of Easter. You know, people said, well, the eggs represent life. Yes, they do. They represent life. We can take the life and say, hey, we're worshiping the God of life. We're worshiping the one that could not be held in the grave. As far as the Easter bunny, my dog killed it this last week, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. I would never have thought my 100-pound dog was fast enough (laughs) or agile enough. (laughs) But there it lay in my backyard, and I knew she hadn't got out. (laughs) So we need to celebrate Easter, our resurrection, every day. Because Jesus lives, we now have new lives in him. Now, the resurrection has come under attack over the centuries. Atheists and agnostics want to deny the possibility that it ever happened. Now, some suggest that Jesus was just in a coma during three days. What they don't recognize is that Jesus was dead and they laid him to rest. And the moment they laid him to rest, heaven started counting. One, (laughs) two, three. And he arose. The third day he came back to life, even though he was dead. We sang that song this morning. In the grave, he began to breathe. He wasn't in a coma. He was dead. Humanists and philosophers, they scoff at the idea of death being defeated. Liberal educators will search for natural reasonings to explain why it is not feasible. But once all is said and done, the truth remains. This grave emptied (laughs) of its own. Now, people have said, well, you know, this is stories, and the early Jewish leaders started that too. You know, so the disciples have snatched it away, and they told the Roman soldiers regarding the grave, tell them that the disciples came, and they took it, and they rolled the stone away at night, and they stole the body. So they went with that story. The fact is that if that's what had happened, all of those soldiers would have been put to death. 
they had now failed on their mission. They would have been put to death. You know, we have the disciples, the ones that saw him after he rose from the dead, and they were beaten, and they were persecuted, and they were killed for their faith or for saying that Jesus was dead. And I'll tell you one thing, having studied human nature, nobody will die for a lie. If you know it's a lie, you're not going to be willing to die for it. And yet every one of them was willing to face death instead of deny their Christ. Peter, who had denied Christ at the, before, just before the crucifixion, a little woman, a little girl, maiden, comes and tells him, well, you're one of his disciples. And he says, no, I'm not. Oh, yeah, she says, your speech gives you away. You are him. You know, when you're a Christian, you should be sounding different. You talk different. You must have been following Christ. He says, I am not. So finally he swore to prove that he was not a follower. <laughs> we know the story. The rooster crows. Peter realized what had happened. Felt bad. The same Peter that wouldn't stand up to a little servant girl got up after he was alive, preached a message to 3,000 people, or won 3,000 people to the Lord. But this very same Peter, when he came to the time where they wanted to crucify him for spreading this message, says, okay, if you want to crucify me, crucify me, but hang me upside down because I don't deserve to die in the same way my Lord did. Something had happened. You don't die like that for a lie. You know, the apostle is told about John the apostle, the apostle of love, or the story is told, that when it was time to put him to death, and they wanted to put him to death, so they put him into a vat of boiling oil, and he just chose not to die. Now, I don't know how you do that, but history tells us they put him in a vat of boiling oil, and they had to drag him out eventually and banish him to the Isle of Patmos because he wouldn't die. Well, then on the Isle of Patmos, he went ahead and he wrote the book called The Revelation of St. John the Divine, the very last book in the New Testament. And he gave a revelation beyond what any of the others had received. And we have the different stories, how, you know, they were cut in half and they were sawn in pieces and different. But rather than recant the story that they had seen a living Christ, they were willing to die for it. Now, in a court of law, that's the type of proof that would prove that the resurrection happened. You know, you can't measure, you can't take scientific knowledge, but you can take the knowledge of the people that saw him. And history keeps proving and proving and proving that this is something that happened. No matter what religion, they recognize Jesus as apostle, or not as an apostle, as a prophet, or as a great teacher, or something. The grave is empty. In fact, there is more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than there is that some of the other religious leaders even lived. And that's without the Shroud of Turin. All the leaders of religious sects have tombs that followers visit and worship at, but Jesus has an empty tomb. When you go to Jerusalem, you say, this is the place where he lay, except it's now empty. There's nothing there. He rose and left it behind. It speaks continually of his resurrection. Now in Acts 1 verse 3, it tells us that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by the apostles during 40 days and speaking the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 
So we have the story how when Jesus came back from the dead, he spent 40 days talking and sharing the things of the kingdom of God that the apostles had not yet learned. Now, even the historian Flavius Josephus, who was born from 37 to early 38 AD in Jerusalem and died at AD 100, he was a Jewish priest, a scholar, and a historian recorded how often Jesus appeared, or that he had appeared again to his disciples. Now, if you happen to know what the Jewish faith, they have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah. So for him to write about, say, this is when appeared, he was seen again as a secular recorder. Gives more credence to that stuff. Now, the Bible tells of numerous times where Jesus appeared after he died and he rose again. And ten of them are where Mary Magdalene was the first one he appeared to. In Matthew chapter 16, 9 to 11. The women returning to the tomb in Matthew 28, 1 to 10. And they found Jesus and they didn't even recognize him. Peter, Luke 24, 34, saw Jesus alive. The two disciples on the Emmaus road in Mark 16, 12, they saw him. Another time, and all of the disciples were together except for Thomas, Mark 16, 14. And when they told Thomas that uh, Jesus had appeared to them, he says, I don't believe it. Hence the term doubting Thomas. I don't believe it. He says, unless I can put my finger into the holes of his hand, unless I can put my hand into this hole in his side, I will not believe that he is the Jesus. Well, one of the next times they all saw him, was in John 20, verse 26, where all the disciples and Thomas were there. And Jesus says to Thomas, he says, go ahead here, put your fingers in. These are the holes. And Thomas fell to his knees and go, my Lord, my Lord. And he believed. And then Jesus says to him, he says, you're blessed because you believe because you've seen, but he's even more blessed than those that have not seen and believe. He appeared to the seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee in John 21, 1-2. He appeared to over 500 brethren in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. He appeared to James, his brother, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And he appeared to the disciples at the Ascension in Acts 1, 1-9. And he says, the same way that I'm left, I'm coming back to you again. And they're standing around and wondering, and then... You know, the story goes on. Why are you standing here looking? You know, he said he would leave. He's coming back. Now, the evidence points to Jesus being raised from the dead, so he is alive, and whoever believes in him finds new life in Christ. In Ephesians 2, 5, it tells us that God gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It goes on to say that we also have been raised from the dead and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And this is the great story of Easter. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Bible tells us that we get We face death at that moment and we get raised from the dead. We are no longer separated from God. You know, spiritual separation is what the Bible refers to as death from God. And because we have believed in Christ, we have accepted his sacrifice, we have been raised from the dead and we have been seated in heavenly places with Christ. Now, I know a lot of Christians, when you look at them or you talk to them, it doesn't look like they've really been raised up. But the Bible tells us that this is our positional place. In heavenly places, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it goes on to say, far above all principalities and powers and all of these different things, we are seated with Christ. We have been given life eternal. That is the reason that death no longer has a fear to the Christians. 
One of the reasons is that Christians, when we die, we don't have to fear. We are not moving into separation from God. We are moving into a time of separation from the things of this earth. But we will be alive in Christ eternally from that moment on. The things that have occupied our time, the things that have occupied our attention for the first however many years, no longer have their hold. Now we get to live eternally, so we have already faced death. We have already faced that separation. We have been buried with Him in baptism, and we are now alive in the realm of the Spirit to God forevermore. And there's really not anything more exciting than the fact that as Christians, death has lost its hold. You know, the Apostle Paul, he wrote to the church, and he says, we don't grieve as those that have no hope. It says, death has already been defeated. See, the moment we get born again, we step from the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life or the kingdom of light. Now, I know there's teaching that goes around the world that says, well, we are all children of God. It doesn't matter. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says God has created everyone, but it says we have to accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for ourselves so that we become the sons of God empowered by His Holy Spirit. Now people will make, and I hear this in the church regularly, well, you know, I would like to, but God knows that the flesh is weak. No, your flesh is strong. The Spirit indwelling inside of you brings the life of Christ to you. But you have not allowed the flesh to become crucified yet, so you're still giving in to the dictates of the flesh. That is why the Bible says we need to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin in Romans chapter 6, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus. We need to come to the point where we start saying, Father, what would you have here? What are you seeing here, God? What should be? What am I to do? How should this be treated? What impact should this have in my life? And we start choosing to go God's way instead of the way of the enemy or the way of the world or the way of sin, whatever way you want to call it. We start picking life because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now we have life because of Christ. We are seated with him, and because we are part of the body of Christ, we have the authority that Jesus had. We have the same standing with God as Jesus does. And this is something that is very hard for people to understand. How could God take people that were dead in their sins and give them the authority of Jesus Christ? See, when we read through the Bible and we start finding out what Jesus expected of his church, we see this time and time again. They're out on a boat. The storm is coming up. Jesus is sleeping in the back. The disciples cry out and say, Lord, don't you care that we're dying out here? Sounds like a lot of Christians I know. We're dying out here, God. Jesus awoke, said, peace, be still. The wind stopped. And he turned around and he rebuked his disciples. How long do I have to be with you, you of little faith? You should have been using this authority. You should have been stepping out in faith. You should have been quieting the wind. 
Now I know, like I say, I know a lot of religious teaching doesn't include this, but this is what the Bible says. When Jesus spoke to his disciples and says, the things that I have done shall you do also and greater because I go unto my Father, it lets us know that we have not been left alone here. Jesus said, all power has been given unto me. Now you go into all the world and make disciples. In other words, he transferred his power to the hands of the church. Then he turns to the church and says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Why is so much of the stuff going on? Because the church has not been doing its job. The church is sitting there wringing its hands and crying because times are tough when we ought to be on our knees and using the authority of the Almighty God and say, Father, we come against these things in the name of Jesus and we declare that the day of freedom has come now. Of course, it's very hard to do that when the church is still involved in the very same sins that the world is involved in. Come on. You know, the church have people that are addicted to drugs. Why are they addicted? Because they haven't used their freedom. But it's very hard to campaign against the use of drugs if the church is sitting around using drugs. The church is involved in pornography. It's very hard to say, God, we need pornography out of this country when the church is busy trying to bring it in. The divorce rate between the church and the people outside of the church is really not that much different. Yes, we believe in covenant. We believe that a man and woman make a commitment to each other till death do us part. Unless somebody else comes along. You know, when you have people getting married, say, well, if it doesn't work out, we're going to find somebody else. That's hardly to say that that's going to be till death do us part then. As long as we're happy, as long as I'm feeling fulfilled, as long as, you know, when you see people that have made commitments to each other and then 60 years later, they're still together. Not because everything was easy, but because they had made a commitment. My father-in-law passed away a while ago after 64 years of marriage. He was still married to the same woman he first married. Now, they've never talked about it, but I'm sure if they would or could have, we could have asked them and said, oh, so was it always easy? (laughs) And the answer would have been no. (laughs) After having raised seven kids... Seven? (laughs) Did I get that right? (laughs) Forget how many in-laws I have. (laughs) Between the in-laws and the outlaws, it gets a little confusing. (laughs) After having raised seven kids on a one income, you can be guaranteed times where it's always easy. But those were not done in days when it's all, if we don't like it, we're leaving. That was a commitment that was made in days where we said until death do us part and somebody's word meant something. So we have a church 
that has ended up getting caught up in all manner of different things. And, and we can't understand why the world is in such a situation. Well, the world is only reflecting what the church is living. I still like that quote from the old movie star. What's her? Mae West. Sex symbol in her day. No, I don't remember her as a person. I just remember the stories of her. <laughs> if you want to Google her. <laughs> and she was starring in a movie, and the movie was, you know, this is a big outrage because as she was getting onto the train, her ankle showed. <laughs> big uproar. How scandalous to show so much skin. Years later, as she was getting older and she was getting closer to death, and she was being interviewed by a reporter. And they said to her, So, May, he says, You always um, ended up like breaking the boundaries and stuff. And how does it feel now to know that you were the forerunner when you watched the movies in these days? And you see so much, you know, skin and different stuff going on in the movies. How, you know, how are you, how are you proud of yourself for having been able to break these doors open? And she looked at him, she says, where is the church? She says, in my day, the church would never have allowed that. Well, the church is sitting in the dark movie theaters, watching it. Oh, don't all look so innocent. I don't thought you. It's that other one. <laughs> but if the church is going to allow all of this stuff going on, how are we supposed to be a stand against it? How are we supposed to say this is enough? See, we have life because of Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenly places and we have the same authority. We have the same standing with God as Jesus does. In fact, Jesus says, when you pray, pray in my name and whatever you ask, he will do. These are pretty daring statements, Jesus. And yet they're recorded in the Bible when we start reading about it. So we hold the same privileges, and that's why it becomes so essential to understand that he is alive. Without the resurrection, there would be no hope for eternal life. Without the resurrection, there would be no hope that things were going to change. We were dead in our sins, but now we are alive forevermore. And because Jesus lives, we live also. Romans 8.11 says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. So our life comes from the life of God. Al had posted on the church website that little meme. If Jesus could come out of the, or rise from the dead, then you can certainly rise from your bed. Get to church on Sunday. <laughs> I know the battle of the blankets is real, but we have the victory if we choose. So when it comes to our spiritual lives, Jesus did not come to remodel us. And this is what we often think, and this is where even a lot of Christian organizations are focusing on the remodeling of people. That was never Jesus' plan. He did not come to remodel us. He didn't come to renovate us. He came to make us brand new. He did not come to restore, but to recreate. 
And when we stopped, you know, I talked to uh, K.P. Yohanan years ago, and he made the comment, he says, so many Christians, he says, they're sending aid to India, and all they're doing is helping the people to go to hell more comfortably. He says, they're not sharing the message of salvation. They are giving them clothes. They're giving them food. They're giving them medical help. But they're not sharing Jesus. And he says, without Jesus, they're going to hell. They're just doing it more comfortably. So we as a church, yes, we want to be involved. You know, when Lillian went to Mexico, they were involved in working in an orphanage or working in the uh, old folks' home or working in the prisons and ministering to the women from the addiction programs and bringing hope. But they weren't bringing just food and flowers. They were bringing the name of Jesus and the liberty that is ours through Christ Jesus. It's got to be both. Jesus didn't come just to make us better people. He came to make us new people. He didn't come just to get us rid of our sins. You know, religion often teaches, well, if you do this and this and cut that and grow this, then you'll be all right. But Jesus said, I want your heart. Give me your heart and I will remake you into who I think you should be. You give me your heart and I'm going to change you so much your mama isn't going to know who you are. All of a sudden, the problem child becomes the one that's always on time. All of a sudden, the one that's been kicking against the pricks their whole life, they turn around and say, what has happened to this child? This child is becoming obedient. They're not fighting every corner. All of a sudden, the parents start going, man, these kids were a blessing. What happens? Jesus came to remake us. He came to give us new life, his life in Christ. In fact, Jesus came to make us alive. I read an acronym by Kenneth Hagin, and I thought, I'm borrowing it. I won't say stealing it because I'll probably never use it again. But the acronym for ALIVE says the A is for adopted. And the first thing that happens is we are adopted into the family of God. Ephesians 1.5 says, His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by sending Jesus Christ to die for us. And he did this because he wanted to. So God was looking to adopt us. And we can go all through the different spiritual lessons. You know, we know that given it shall be given unto you. We know that every seed shall bear after its own kind. Jesus was given as a seed by the Father. Jesus wanted mankind. He wanted sons. He didn't want more servants. He didn't want slaves. He wanted sons. So he gave his son... And it says that we became the firstborn of many brethren. So we are brothers. Now, you know, you may have been in a home where you thought that mom liked the other brother better than you. Maybe some of you got raised that way. But usually it comes down to the inheritance. And you find out everybody was equal. In fact, the inheritance will say there's so and so many kids, divide it so and so many ways. The Bible says we are heirs of God, joint heirs or equal heirs with Christ Jesus. You know, we would think Jesus would have been the most special one of the whole bunch. The Father says we're equal. Why? Because his spirit is in us, we're his kids. 
Think about that for a moment. What, what doors does that open? What realm does that make you begin to think in all of them? You start recognizing that the, God the Father loves you just as much as he loved Jesus. We are adopted. That was the A. The L for alive is loved. We are loved unconditionally. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Now the Bible tells us that Jesus is the head and the church is the body. Well, your head and your body do not operate independently of each other. The minute you sever the head from the body, they're both gone. The head needs the body, the body needs the head. Why? Because the part, heart is the part that pumps the blood through the brain and keeps everything functioning. And the minute that severed happens, the head is no more. And the body is no more. That's how close we have been united into Christ Jesus. He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. One of the things the Christian church needs to start doing is start, stop seeing the difference or the separation between Jesus and the body. We are no longer separated. We are one. We are engrafted. The eye. We are engrafted into the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, or the Amplified says, Therefore, if any person is engrafted in Christ the Messiah, he is a new creature, a new creature altogether. The old previous moral and spiritual condition has passed away. Behold, the fresh and the new has come. You are engrafted, and Paul writes about this more. He says, you which were wild by nature were grafted into the vine." That means the blood. That means the life. That means the Holy Spirit flows through you the way he flowed through Jesus. When you're yielded, when you're tied in, when you're together. We are victorious, the V. We are victorious because Jesus rose in victory. In Romans 8, 37, again out of the Amplified, it says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors and gain an overwhelming victory through him who loved us so much that he died for us. People turn around and say, Well, you know, sin is this or the devil is that. Why are you focused on sin or the devil? Focus your attention on Jesus Christ and the spirit that dwells inside of you. Sin does not have to have hold on you. A number of years ago, it became very popular. A number, I think, about maybe 25 or 30 years ago. It became very popular when Christians were asked, well, the devil made me do it. Then why are you yielding to him? You were set free. When Jesus hung on that cross and he cried out, it is finished. He meant that the bondage that the enemy could bring had been broken and it was now life everlasting that was flowing into his church, that was to be his church. If the devil made you do it, you need to get yourself a new master. And then the E is empowered. 
We are empowered by the Holy Spirit who can now live within us. Romans 8, 11, it says, The Spirit of the one who resurrected Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. Then you can be sure that he who raised him will cast the light of life into your mortal bodies through the life-giving power of the Spirit residing within you. He who raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of you. See, God's not far away. I've heard people at different times and they'll make the comments, well, you know, it it feels like God is so far away and it feels like I pray and pray and pray and my prayers don't even reach the ceiling and and it feels, we don't go by our feelings. And your prayers don't have to hit the ceiling. Your prayers have to touch your heart. Why? Because greater is he that lives in me than he that lives in the world. You know, in the days of Elijah, he met the prophets of Baal. And they decided to have their showdown. And the prophets of Baal, they said, okay, you know, Elijah said, okay, this is it. He said, choose this day whom you're going to follow. If you want to follow your God, follow your God. If you're going to follow this. He said, choose this day. We're going to have ourselves a little test. We'll see which God is real. We know the story, right? They built the stone altar. They dug the ditch around it. They put the wood on it. They put the cows on it or whatever they were sacrificing. They kept pouring water on it. No, they didn't pour water at first. And he says to the prophets of Baal, he says, okay, the God that answers by fire, he will be God. You go first. So all the prophets of Baal Baal began to dance and shout and cry and cut themselves with knives. And Elijah took a coffee break. Or something. So after they've been hollering and screaming and dancing and nothing happened, and he says, well, maybe you're going to have to do a little louder. Maybe he's sleeping. So they began to yell louder. Nothing happened. So finally it was his turn. He said, okay, he's now dig a ditch. Dug a ditch. He says, let's go get some water. They poured water all over the offering until the ditch was full. And he says, God that answers by fire, send your fire. And the fire fell from heaven. The sacrifice burnt up, the stones burnt up, the water burnt up. That's the God that lives in us. That's the God that dwells in us. We don't have to be hollering like the prophets of Baal. Our God is alive. You know, this is why a lot of people, you know, they're shouting and screaming and they're, oh, you know, oh, we have to, we have to really, he's here. Now, yes, there is times where we need to stir ourselves up and we need to be praying with conviction and authority, but it's not to try and make God listen. God hears our slightest whisper. In fact, he says, if you come with the right heart, he's there. And yet so often, even in the Christian church, we seem to think, well, we have to, you know, have stolen so many hollering and screaming and doing whatever if we want to get. We don't have to. We just need to stir ourselves up so that our hearts are touched by the things that touch the heart of the Father. And sadly, too many of us have been busy on the morphine or something uh, spiritually. So we no longer feel the pain that God feels. We see our neighbors on their way to hell and we just smile and wave. What has happened to the church? 
See, the Bible says that Jesus, or that God sent his son Jesus because he was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And no, I don't think that means we all have to get into full-time evangelism. We have to do this and that. I think that means we have to be willing to give in, in season and out to meet the people, to influence the people that come across our path and be able to share life with them when the questions get asked. They should be able to see that there's something different about us. And we can offer love. And we can offer peace. See, Jesus defeated death. He did the devil and all of his forces. The curtain in the temple with the power and the presence of God resided was torn in two when Jesus rose from the dead. And the Bible tells us the moment he came back from the dead, it says the veil of the Top to bottom. Now that veil, you know, we think of a veil. A veil is those little crazy things that you hang out over your. Uh, like what a bride. This veil was a piece of cloth. Obviously, I've never seen it, but I've heard that you could six oxen on each veil. They would to rip that. And yet the minute, the minute that Jesus rose from the dead and the earthquake comes and the rocks are crumbling, the graves are opening, and God the Father said the price has been paid, and he grabbed that veil. I can move out now and I can live with my people. The price for sin was paid. All of a sudden, the holiness of God was no longer going to kill his people. Coming to the of God, dead. Now the price of sin had been removed, and God said, Now I can live with my people. This was the plan of God since the beginning of time, and it was only through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he was able to fulfill that plan. See, God spoke to Moses, and he says, Go tell these people that they will be my people, and I will be their God, and I will talk to them. And Moses went and told the people, he said, We don't want to talk to God. You go talk to him and then tell us what he said. You know how many people in churches still live under the Old Testament? We don't want to talk to God. You tell us what he said and we're okay with that. And yet God is asking each person to come through that torn veil into his presence and to be known of him even as he knows them. See, the whole story, the whole theme, the whole reason for the Easter story was so that God would be able to live with his people face to face. That was his want, his desire. Through Ezekiel, God already said that I will give my people, I will remove the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and I will be their God and they will be my people. And yet people draw back and say, we don't want to come in. No, no, we don't. That's too much for me. That's too this. That's too that. Without the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit could not have been released into the earth in the same measure. 
Now, I know he moved upon people in the Old Covenant, but in the New Testament, he is no longer upon, he is now within. So God, with ripping that veil, said he was no longer living in a house of stone, but in you and me, a house made out of flesh. Now Jesus made that possible when he rose triumphantly from the grave. So never forget who you are. You are alive, adopted, loved, engrafted, victorious and empowered in Christ Jesus. Now there is no better way of celebrating Easter than at the communion table. Without saying one word, this table speaks of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. The elements, the bread and the cup that represent his broken body and his shed blood also represent our salvation, our freedom. Now without the empty tomb, these would just be an empty tradition. But it's not tradition. The same Savior that died and rose is coming again. So we do this in remembrance of him until he comes. Now I believe that children need to be part of our communion service. When Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross and he had his last supper, we all thought, oh, well, he was having the last supper. What he was having was the Passover meal. The reminiscent, he tied the Old Testament in with the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, the Passover meal represented the time when Israel left Egypt. And they took the blood of the lamb that they had killed and put it on the doorposts and the lentils of their homes. They ate the flesh that had been roasted. They ate the unleavened bread inside their home and they got ready to travel. And he says, make sure all of your children are inside with you. Bring them all under the covering. And I believe that's for myself. I know others have different theories. That's fine. I believe it's important for the children to be part of communion. To recognize that what we are doing is not some strange and mystical thing. It is taking the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, applying it to our families, but also watching our families live under that protection. So I'm going to ask that they, somebody would go and mention to the children, Elle is going.